much that we are here tonight to study your word. And as we get into a portion of scripture that perhaps uh, gets um, ignored so often by Christians, a portion of scripture that uh, perhaps we think is um, not relevant to us today, that we know that as we look at uh, the book of Exodus in these uh, laws that are given to a nation that we today can make application. And, and Lord, we can see your heart. We can see how it is that you desire for us to treat others. And Lord, how it is that, that we are to reach out to others. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that tonight as we once again open your word and as we open our hearts to you. Teach us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, in the third month of the Exodus, uh, the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai where God said, I'm going to make myself known to you. And uh, he would, in the manifestations of uh, the, the mountain shook and the mountain was on fire and there was great earthquakes and, and uh, thunders and lightnings and um, there was the sound of a trumpet and a voice of God and, and Moses answered God. And, and the people trembled and, and they realized that uh, God is indeed an awesome and he is um, a powerful God. They had seen his power in bringing the Egyptians um, to the point where Pharaoh said, leave, and, and brought the children of Israel out of that uh, 400 years of bondage and slavery uh, by the mighty hand of God. And, and also God opening up the Red Sea and, and allowing the children of Israel to cross on dry land and then drown the Egyptian army. And so they've seen uh, their God, an awesome God, an almighty God, working on their behalf. And so in chapter 20, as they are receiving the law of God, they receive the Ten Commandments as the Ten Commandments are the very foundation of the law of God given to them. But the law is going to be more specifically spelled out to them in what is known as the Book of the Covenant, or it is also called uh, the Law of Moses. And it, it details, as we see uh, beginning in chapter 20, going through chapter uh, 24, uh, the civil and religious laws given to them in detail. In other words, the Ten Commandments, which is the foundation, the first four laws of the Ten Commandments, as you know, that they deal with man's relationship with God. You shall worship the Lord your God and only Him. Um, you shall have no other gods before me, no carve images. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then you shall uh, work six days. The seventh day is to be holy, is to be a day of rest, the Sabbath day. And so the next six commandments deals with man's relationship with fellow man. And so uh, you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, uh, you shall not uh, covet your neighbor, um, you shall not steal. And I know I'm missing one in there, um, and uh, it'll come to me. And uh, what was it? False witness. Thank you very much. And uh, I was quizzing you guys. So anyway, um, those are the Ten Commandments. And so as we get into the Book of the Covenant, the Lord is spelling out now, what happens if you steal? What happens if you murder? Um, the specific details of the law that are, are given to them to give to the judges that they can render judgment. And so that's what we're looking at. And it's not just here in the book of, of Exodus uh, in these few chapters, chapters 20, uh, the end of chapter 20, the law of the altar. Then we saw the law concerning servants, the law concerning violence and, and personal injury, and then the law concerning personal loss of property and animal control laws, all these things that we've been looking at. But also we're going to see the ceremonial laws when we get into chapter 25 and the tabernacle is going to be constructed and all the furnishings and stuff. But also when you get into the book of Leviticus, there you see the priests are given very specific details concerning the sacrifices and their responsibilities and their duties. When you get into the book of Numbers, you see the same thing. And then also Deuteronomy gets more specific on some of the things that we are talking about right now here in the book of Exodus. So that's all the law of Moses, the, 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 the book of the covenant that is being written for the people to know how it is that they are to run their nation when they come into the promised land. And so all the, the, the um, guidelines given to them uh, for the judges that they can render fair and just judgments uh, concerning different issues that come up. And so we left off looking at uh, responsibility for property. So let's pick up our text again, chapter 22, at verse 16, as we see some moral laws that are given here. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price 
for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. In ancient Israel and in ancient times, there was three main phases that, that um, couples would go through when they would get married. And it would start even at a, an early age in their lives. Um, most of the time what would happen is many of the marriages were arranged. And um, so you lived in a village, and, and so uh, you have a, a child, and, and in that village there's, you know, um, some, another family that um, has a child, and, and, you know, Joseph is, is, you know, playing well with Mary or whatever. They're getting along. The families know each other or whatever it might be. So oftentimes parents will make pre, you know, uh, arrange marriages, and, and, hey, when they get of age, let's put these two together, and let's arrange that they're going to be uh, betrothed to each other and then eventually married. And so that could take place at an early age, maybe sometimes later. And so those arrangements being made, and during that time, what would happen is a dowry would begin to be saved by uh, the male, the, the, the young man, the young child and his father. And a dowry would be saved up to where it would include a sum of money or sometimes animals. And you need to remember when we read about the oxen and the sheep and all of this, back in ancient times, you know, those animals were very important. They were, you know, what kept people, you know, going. To have an ox was something very special. That was your lifeline because you needed that ox to what? Plow the field. And if you couldn't plow the field, then you didn't eat. And, and so you were in big trouble to have sheep. And so your wealth was very much considered by oftentimes how many animals did you have. And so a dowry would be given. And, and there would be uh, this agreement that, um, that when your son marries my daughter, when they enter into that espousal period or what is called the betrothal period, which is like what we think of today, the engagement period. They would usually reach that about the late teenage years, 15, 16 years of age. And um, they would be betrothed to each other for a year. It, it would be that dowry that would be paid at that time to the father of the bride. And, and what that did was is that it communicated respect to the father of the bride. It showed that, that you as a young man valued his daughter very much and valued the fact that they were going to become married. And also what it did, it was almost like alimony in advance in case of divorce, that she wouldn't be left with anything. They didn't have divorce court. They didn't have all these things that we do today. And so uh, the father would hold on to that dowry, and, um, and so he would keep it in case um, that she was left or there was a certificate of divorce that was given to her. In Jesus' day, we'll talk about this more, there was two views on divorce, and actually divorce uh, was happening at a faster pace and at a greater pace in Jesus' day because some of the teachings, again, we'll talk about that when they come to Jesus and ask him questions about marriage and divorce. But a dowry would be given to, to the father of the bride. They would enter into a one-year period called the espousal period or betrothed to each other. It was that period that Mary uh, was with Joseph when she became pregnant with Jesus. And, of course, in that period of espousal, they are legally married, but they never consummated the marriage physically. They didn't live together. It was, like I said, like the engagement period that a couple would go through today, except at that time that they were considered married. Um, it was like a year-long that espousal period. They lived in their own parents' homes. They lived apart, and they would prepare for the time that they would get married, and that dowry would be given to the father and worked for during that time, the father of the bride. It was during that time that, of course, as, as Mary had not known a man, even though she was a spouse to Joseph, and uh, she would be conceived of the Holy Spirit, and the angel came to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and uh, she shall uh, give birth to the Son of the Most Highest, and he shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph was wanting to put Mary away at that time secretly, that is, give her that certificate of divorce. Even as we go through the law, he could have done worse, and he could have made a public example of her and taken her and presenting her to the judges of the city 
because we see consequences here that we're going to see for immorality, for adultery that are going to be spelled out for us. And so he didn't want to do that. And so he is told, go ahead and take Mary, your wife, uh, for uh, she remains a virgin, has not known a man. And then it would be after that espousal period that they would have the wedding ceremony. It would be a great celebration. And it would be at that time that they would consummate the marriage and, uh, and they would live together and um, begin to, to have a family. So here we see that if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, then that man was to pay the bride price for her to be his wife. That dowry was to be given to the father. And he was to take her as a wife, but if the father refused to do that, said, you're not going to marry that, you know, that guy. Um, I refuse to give my daughter um, to that creep and uh, he's not going to marry her, then he still had to pay that dowry to her. And so that's the law that is given uh, or to uh, the father for the bride. And, um, and it was a very serious manner. But I think that the application that we can make today is that there is a price for immorality. And we need to understand that. And I pray that all of us would understand that, and particularly that we would teach our children that, and for our young people to understand there is a price for immorality. The sexual relationship is to be enjoyed in the marriage relationship. God made it to be enjoyed, but to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. And the Lord says, listen, that it is to be reserved only in that relationship. But immorality, if it's sexual immorality uh, before you get married, adultery, which is sexual immorality outside the marriage relationship, when it comes to any kind of fornication, fornication covers any kind of sexual immorality that might be there, there's going to be a price for it. We as a society and, and we as a nation, we are declining in morality and, and we are a society that we are saying more and more is acceptable, that it's okay to be involved in, in premarital sex. It's okay to be involved in, in immorality. You shouldn't judge people. We even snicker at the fact of adultery. You know, well, you know, it happens and it happens to a lot of people. And I pray that we wouldn't have that mindset that as Christians that we would understand that there is a price for sexual immorality, that God has called us to purity, that God has called us to holiness. And you see, there's a price spiritually, there's a price emotionally, there's a price physically. We have millions and millions of people that are suffering from sexually transmitted diseases. We have people that are, are in turmoil, young people, emotionally and spiritually because they have bought into the lie that it's okay and it will satisfy them. And it's created all kinds of problems. And we see that in the acceptance of that, that there's all kinds of perversity that's being accepted as well today. And the Lord says no. The Lord says it's a gift, the sexual relationship, but to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. And I want to encourage young people who are not married that you want to keep yourself pure. That's what God desires. You young people who are not married, you keep yourself till that, that relationship in marriage before you give yourself to somebody. Because the Lord honors that when you do that. The Lord desires for you. You see, when you get married and you give yourself to someone, you give yourself to that, that person emotionally, don't you? You give yourself to that person spiritually, but also physically as well. And to be robbed of that, that one thing that you want to give to, to a young lady that has met a man that she wants to spend the rest of her life, or a man who has met a woman, a young lady that he wants to spend the rest of his life, I pray that, that you would be able to say that spiritually, emotionally, physically, I want to give to you all that I have, and you're not giving it away to somebody else that you're not involved in immorality and experiencing the consequences and repercussions that are so negative and, and, and cost so much the lives of young people. And we see it all around us, don't we? We see young people that are going through just difficult times and turmoil and, and, and emotionally, and again, spiritually and physically. We see families being torn apart and marriages being torn apart because of sexual immorality that's being accepted so much today. And it's a loving father that says, no, stay away from it. And you walk in purity and holiness because I want the very best for you. 
and for you to have the very best for that person that you're going to be married to and give yourself to. So you keep yourself in purity, walking in purity and holiness. You know what? That's a wonderful testimony. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to say, you know what? I'm going to do that and walk in that way as the Lord has called me and not buy into the lies of our society and the world that's saying it's okay, do it. Everybody else is doing it. Who cares what everybody else is doing and what they say? You do what God calls you to do. And you stay pure and you stay close to the Lord and you walk in obedience to Him. And so there was a price to be paid. And in verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. And he who sacrifices to any God except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. And so uh, here we see some, uh, you know, Hard words that the Lord says against those who are witches, sorcery, occultic kinds of practices. You're not to have anything to do with it. We see in the book of Deuteronomy, he explains it very well. You're not to have anything to do with witchcraft and anything to do with occultic kinds of mysticism and practices and things like that. Now, sometimes people will say, well, there's white witches and there's good witches and there's Mother Earth witches. There's nothing wrong with them. They're all witches to God. And there is deception behind it, and there is that which is false, and there's a pulling people away from the true and the living God. And that's why the Lord has some harsh words to say about it. And it's the children of Israel that will go into the promised land, and they will get involved in sorceries. They will get involved in witchcraft. They will get involved with those who will pull them away into that which is false. And you see, the Lord knows that there's eternal consequences for doing that. And that's why it's important that you and I as Christians that we do stand for righteousness, that we stand for the truth and we give people the truth. And as Christians, we are not to be involved in witchcraft and sorcery and occultic kinds of things and mysticisms and new age kinds of practices and be enamored with all those things. But to keep our eyes on the Lord and the word of God given to us because behind those things are demonic influences and those things that will pull you away from the Lord and lead you down a road of deception and that which is false. And so the Lord says, don't do it. Stay away from it and uh, stay away from those who do it. And here um, he has some harsh punishment for those who uh, sacrifice to any other God. In verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry uh, at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wife shall be widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. In verse 27, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Interesting here, we see that the Lord begins to talk about four groups of people. He talks about the stranger. He talks about the fatherless, that is the orphans, the widows. And he talks about the person who is poor. And he tells the children of Israel, I have a heart for them. And you're not to mistreat them. For I am a gracious God. And you are to remember the stranger. He said, remember how you were a stranger in Egypt. And as they were in Egypt, as we talked about, they were enslaved, they were in bondage, they were afflicted, they were killing the babies. And he says, remember how it was when you were a stranger. And I think that if any of us have traveled overseas, we've been in another country, perhaps you've been in the mission field. I know that if I go to Africa, the Uganda or Sudan, if I go to the, the Middle East or the Far East, whatever it might be, you really feel that when you're a stranger in the land. And, and, and you know, you're always on the watch and, and you may not always be treated the best. And the Lord says, remember how it was when you were a stranger and you're not to take advantage and afflict and, and, to, and to, to treat others in a way that is displeasing to the Lord. Remember how it was. And I think that these are verses, and we're going to talk more about strangers being in the, in the land. The Lord will talk about how Israel was to be a sovereign nation and how they were to keep their sovereignty, but also how it was that they were to treat the stranger. And I think these are good things because it's an important issue to us today, isn't it? And I think that we need to pray about these things and we need to take these things to heart. You don't mistreat the stranger. You don't afflict them. 
But we're also going to see some other guidelines that are given that would keep the sovereignty of Israel in check and stuff. And so he says, I see the stranger, remember how it was. They were not to take advantage of people who were orphans. They were not to take advantage of the, the widows because they're already without protection. No mistreatment of them because if you do, it arouses God's anger. They're already in a position where they can easily be taken advantage of. And so God has a special heart uh, for the widows and for the orphans as well. James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God. And the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to see again that it's going to talk more about the stranger. It's going to talk more about the foreigner. It's going to talk more about widows and the poor and things like that when we get into details there. But we know that it was for the poor a provision that they had is that they could go in and glean the, the corners of the field. And that was what you see Jesus, and we're going to see Jesus doing with his disciples in Matthew's Gospels. He's there on the Sabbath day with his disciples. They're gleaning the fields. And so that provision of Deuteronomy chapter 24 is that if you're poor and didn't have anything to eat, you go in the corners of the field, the corners of the vineyards, and you would take in the fields that grain and you would rub that grain in your hand and the chaff would separate from the grain and then you just blow the chaff away and you'd eat the grain. You didn't go in with a sickle and start harvesting wheat. But you went in and you start picking it, and so that provision was given. The religious leaders come against Jesus and his disciples who were doing that, which was a sign that they were poor, but they were doing it on the Sabbath day. And so they were upset at Jesus and the religious leaders for doing that. So they could go in, they could glean the fields, and then also any of the fields that were left uh, at harvest time, the grain that fell on the ground, they could harvest that as well. And we see it in the book of Ruth, don't we? Ruth, who was a widow, as she came back with Naomi from Moab, and she's back in Bethlehem, and it was Boaz uh, who noticed Ruth and said, hey, you guys, spill some grain when you're pulling in the harvest. Matter of fact, you know, spill a whole lot of grain for her. And, um, and because she was a widow, and that was a, a way that they could provide for them. And so the Lord is saying um, that you are not to take advantage of the poor. It's interesting isn't it, as we look at this, that he says that if you give a loan um, that, uh, to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not charge him interest. Kind of an interesting verse, especially today when we're dealing with uh, a mortgage crisis and housing crisis because of uh, practices of, of loan officers that are questionable, that were risky, that uh, there's investigations going on right now with certain banks. One of the major banks that closed in, in California are now under investigation of, of fraud and risky uh, practices of loan uh, you know, uh, practices and giving out mortgages and things like that. And, and here the Lord says that to the poor you're not to charge them interest. And also that if you take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, that is their coat, you shall return it before the sun goes down because how's he going to keep warm when he goes to bed? So the Lord here is saying that again, that I have a heart for those who are strangers, those who are fatherless. I do have a heart for those who are widows and those who are poor. And what he's saying in this text is, is that you are to, to treat people right. You're to treat them honestly. You're not to take advantage of them. And so verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Again, kind of interesting verses we can think about. And, and, and you can do more digging um, as you look at what uh, other portions of Scripture says, both Old and New Testament, about how we are to speak about rulers. We know from the Scriptures we are to pray for them. Uh, we know that we are to be in submission to those who rule over us. Um, but I think that here, verse 28, uh, not only revile God, but those who are rulers over us, um, that uh, is something maybe perhaps that we need to keep in mind, especially in this election year, And uh, because we like to do a lot of talking, don't we? And sometimes that talk can uh, get pretty heavy. And, um, and um, certainly we have... Uh, issues and views that we feel strongly about and, and, and the election is important and who we consider that we're going to vote for and stuff and we all have a voice to give and, and we feel strongly about certain issues. But I think as Christians that we do need to be careful of what comes out of our mouths concerning things because it can get so cutthroat and it can get very nasty 
And I think that, that we need to, yes, stand for what we believe in. Yes, we do need to, to uh, discuss the issues, and, and, um, and those things need to be important to us. But revile a person and revile uh, the leaders is something that we need to take to the Lord and make sure that we're not getting to the point where it's displeasing to him. In verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe... Pro- I was going to say something, but I won't say it. You shall not delay to offer your first of your ripe produce and your juices the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me and so here we talked about in exodus 13 the law of the firstborn the lord said belongs to me and then as we get into next chapter we're going to see that uh, the first fruits were to be given to the lord as well in verse 30 likewise you shall do with your oxen and your sheep it shall be with his mother seven days and on the eighth day you shall give it to me and you shall be holy man to me you shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field you shall throw it to the dogs so no roadkill guys leave it alone and give it to the dogs is what the lord is saying don't be eating that go out and you know do it right verse chapter 23 you shall not circulate a false report do not put your hand with the wicked to be unrighteous witness and so here um, in these in these laws that are given concerning a case that comes up when a case comes before the judges you're not to be one that gives a false report there is to be no lying God wants us to be honest and he wants us to be honest with the witness that we give concerning another person or an event now the Bible talks about by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, it is interesting that we live in a society today in the legal system, of course, where we can get very crafty in our witness, can't we? We can start mixing words. We can start being confusing. We can make excuses, all these other things. And the Lord says, you be honest and no false witness. And I think that we need to keep that in mind that we don't get involved in, in the workplace and, and in the neighborhood and other things, that when we're talking to that we have a false witness towards somebody, that we, that we begin to say things that we don't know are true, we don't know, and we're just being involved in the gossip that everybody else is talking about, the boss or this coworker or the neighbor over here and all this stuff. We need to be careful not to be involved with false reporting false witness of somebody else. And of course, that's one of the Ten Commandments that I forgot that Wayne so nicely reminded me of. So no false witness uh, concerning the neighbors, concerning you know the legality uh, in the courtroom or whatever that they had. And in verse 2, you shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many uh, to pervert justice. And so you don't follow the crowd to do evil. Don't follow the crowd. You need to do what is right. And I think this is a good word for us today. And it's a good word for us to remind our children, to teach them that you don't go with the flow of the crowd. When they are doing something that everybody else is saying it's okay, when you know that God's word says that it's evil, that you don't follow after the crowd. And I think we need to keep this word to our hearts very, very close to our hearts, especially in the day in which we are living in. Because we are living in a day where more and more the crowd is saying, immorality, these things, homosexuality, it's okay, it's good, it's fine, it's not sin. And so what is happening is people are saying, yeah, we agree, and then the church at large is more and more starting to buy into that. And the line is being drawn. And more of the crowd is saying it's acceptable and we can't say that it's sin and God's word, you know, we shouldn't say that and preach that. And now we are beginning to see that um, it is becoming more and more to where you're considered using hate crime if you say the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. And we need to decide as Christians, and I believe it's going to be all of us and it's going to be me as a teacher, are we going to stand for what's right and what God's word has to say? You see, we have this new Senate Bill 200 that just passed. And, the, you know, the, those who are in law and lawyers are looking over it and what is the implication of it, what's the implication of the churches and stuff. And it's more than just if you're, you know, tra- transgender or trans, you know, uh, um, uh, homosexual or if you're, you know, uh, transvestite or whatever it might be that, you know, if you're male and you want to use the female bathroom that you can do that in the public places. 
It's more than that. It, it's what they're getting out of it is if you have printed material like Focus on the Family does that says homosexuality, God sees it as a sin, and that's what God's Word is, is saying, then they can come against you. And we're going to see a lot more lawsuits coming against. Um, there's a huge lawsuit right now that's come against Nelson Publishing and Zondermans and the Bibles that they print and the commentaries that say that homosexuality is wrong. We're going to see more and more in that. And I believe that we're going to see more and more uh, coming after pastors that are going to stand for God's word and teach God's word. I do not understand why they say it's hate. If I say to my child, you know what, David, Luke, or Barbara and Rachel, you're not supposed to lie. Does that mean I hate them? It means that God's word says don't lie, and he wants the very best for you, and he loves you. And it's that way with any form of immorality, including homosexuality. God says it's wrong, and it's sin. And repent and turn to him and be free from that. And if we truly love people, we're going to give them the truth. But you see, the crowd is going to say you're being intolerant and you're being hateful and all of this. And I've already, you know, have pretty much come to, you know, the, the, to, you know to settle in my own heart that it's going to be harder for me to teach the Word of God. But I'll tell you what, I am held to a stricter judgment, James says. And there's going to be the day where I'm not going to stand before Governor Ritter. And I'm not going to stand before the legislators. And I'm not going to stand before the crowds. But I'm going to stand before God Almighty. And I am held at a stricter judgment. And I have already settled in my heart that I'm going to teach God's word faithfully to the best of my ability what his word has to say. And if that means that I'm going to be, we're going to talk about this on Sunday. Jesus said, as he sent those disciples out two by two, you are going to get persecuted. And he talks about how they're going to deliver you up to councils and to kings. And, and I'll be with you and I'll give you the words to say when that happens. You stand strong. But he said, I came to, to bring division. I came to bring father against son and son against father. That is, that if you're going to follow after me, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after me. You need to be totally committed to me and surrender to me and to what my word has to say. But so much of what we're seeing in the church at large is, well, you know what? We need to follow the crowd and follow the crowd to do evil, and we need to be politically correct, and we need to say this is acceptable and not to be judgmental. And the problem is if when you begin to say, well, you know what? It's okay. Homosexuality is moral and it's right, and God says nothing against it, and he doesn't say it's sin, then what you have to do is you have to say other forms of immorality that a man and a woman living together outside of marriage, that that's okay because you can't judge them. You see what I mean? It just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And that's what we're seeing in our country. We are seeing in Europe and we are seeing in Canada that pastors that teach that homosexuality is sin, that lawsuits can be brought against them and they can get in big trouble for that. And I see the, the way that we are going in this country, that that kind of radical legislation is going to begin to be presented not only in the state legislations but also in the National Congress as well. And it is coming. So are you and I going to stand for righteousness or not? And it isn't going to just be, and that's why I've always said that the feel-good Christianity and, and the entertainment, all of that stuff is going to come to an end. And Christians are going to have to make a stand of whether I am going to fear God and not man. And I've determined in my heart as long as the pastor of this church that I know that it's going to be tougher for me that people are going to come against me and people are going to fault me and they're going to say your hate speech and all this as I stand on the word of God. But you know what? I want to give people the truth and the opportunity to experience God's love and his truth and to turn away whether it's immorality of any kind or whether any kind of other sin. To turn from that and turn to Jesus Christ and live for him and to walk in righteousness because eternity does lie in the balance. And eternity is real and it's a long time. It's forever. And I am going to be held accountable for what I say here. 
The church at large right now is a whole lot of talk about we need to come together in unity and be tolerant and accepting of one another. We do that, but not at the sake of compromising truth we don't do that at. And Jesus said, I came along to bring division. And I think it's going to get worse as we get closer. We know that in the tribulation period, that those who are believers in the tribulation period, that they're going to lose their heads because they're going to make a stand for Jesus Christ. And I think that all of us in this room, that as we are getting closer to the return of the Lord, that we're going to have to make that decision. Am I going to make a stand or am I going to follow the crowd and compromise God's word and compromise? You know what? I'm not going to apologize for God's word. I'm not going to make excuses for it. I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm going to tell you what God's word has to say. And you see, I do verse-by-verse teaching here. That means from Genesis to Revelation. So that means I covered it all. I can't skip it. I can't say, well, you know what, we're just going to do a 10-week series, you know, and that'll buy me 10 weeks, and we'll talk about how to feel happy, you know, or, you know, 10 weeks on this subject and avoid all those things. We're going to talk about these things because I want you to receive the whole counsel of God's Word that you can experience life abundantly, what He has for you, and to know truth and to walk in righteousness and to walk in holiness and purity that He has for you to experience the best way of living. It's coming. And it's not a game anymore. It never has been a game. But don't see it as a game. It's going to be that you're going to be called on the carpet in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and with your family. Because these things are going to come up. And you're going to have the decision when it comes, when you have opportunity to speak up to say, you know what, I'm sorry, but I dis you know, agree. And God's word says this, that this is wrong and this is immoral, that this isn't right. And I believe the word of God. And he desires for you to turn away from that and experience his forgiveness and his love. All of us are going to come to that and make a decision in that if we're going to stand for the Lord. So he says that you shall not follow the crowd. I think that's where I was, wasn't I? Chapter 23. Shall not, verse 3, show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Interesting, isn't it? Read verse 6. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. In other words, you can show favoritism towards the poor. And, and in one sense, you're to treat everyone fairly. Show no favoritism. Um, we know that poverty is not an excuse for crime in God's eyes. It's not an excuse to just steal and not an excuse to do what's wrong. But also you should not take advantage of the one who's poor, that you are to be just and fair. In verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. And so in other words, uh, you know, the neighbor that you don't like, the ox is on the loose, you don't say, ha, ha, good, I hope that ox runs away and stuff. That'll serve that jerk, right? You don't do that. You bring it back. So a neighbor's dog gets loose. Dog that barks and keeps you up. You know, there's different ways you can do it, but you know what? The thing is, don't allow your dislike for someone not to be fair and just to them, okay? We as Christians, that we are to be different. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So your donkey's loaded down, weighed down, you're, you know, the person you don't like is trying to get him up. You're to go over and help. You're to go over and help. Verse 6, you shall not pervert the judgment of the poor in this dispute. Keep yourself far from a false manner. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for... A bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so, uh, don't do anything with the false manner that's going to bring injustice. Uh, you shall take no bribes. Uh, and again, the treatment of a stranger. Notice here that he says, you know the heart of a stranger. You know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. How about that stranger to the kingdom of God? I, I know that many of us can say, I remember what it was like when I was an, an unbeliever, when I was involved in sin, when I thought that those things were okay. I remember those things, and, and I'm so glad I'm free from it. I've repented from it. I belong to the Lord. But, but you, you know what that person, that unbeliever, 
when we talk to them. We don't excuse them, and we stand for righteousness, but we can have compassion, and, and we can know, yes, you know, they, they are having those feelings. I remember it was like, that's all they know. They need Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel. You know somewhat their heart, what it is that they're, they're going through. Because I used to be that way, and I used to have that heart, but now I have a new heart. I'm a new creation in Christ because I've given my life to Him. And so again, talking about the stranger, as the Lord says, you know the heart of a stranger because you were in the land of Egypt. In six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. In the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. And the poor of your people may eat. Again, that's gleaning the fields. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyards and your olive grove. And so here there was to be a Sabbath rest of the land. Again, that will explain in more detail. They were to, to produce crops, the grains and the vineyards for six years. And in the seventh year, they were to rest, weren't they? So that was called the Sabbath year. Now it's interesting when you look at the house of Judah, when they went into captivity, Jeremiah says that your captivity is going to last for 70 years because you did not rest the land in the Sabbath years. So in other words, for 490 years, they did not take the Sabbath rest of the land. They were disobedient to God. They thought, you know what, we can't rest the land. I can't rest my field in the seventh year. And God, we're going to see here in the law, is going to say in the sixth year, I'm going to double your crops. If you trust in me and become obedient, I'm going to provide for you. But the seventh year, that land is the rest. And they didn't do it for 490 years. So the Lord says, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years, and the land's going to get its rest. I'm going to get those Sabbath years back. And the lesson and the application that you and I can make is we can think, well, I'm going to compromise. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do what God's word has to say because I think I'm going to get ahead when I do that. And we're not going to get ahead whenever we are disobedient to God's word. But the Lord says to you and to me, listen, be obedient to me in what I tell you. And you're going to see that I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to help you. And we're going to see here that the feasts are going to be given and the males were to go down and celebrate the feast three times a year. And in that celebration, as they went, God said, I'm going, to, I'm going to provide for your house. I'm going to protect your home. But you come down and you worship me during this time. And so the Sabbath rest for the land, and then the Sabbath day again reiterated, verse 12, six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. And three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time of Pointed in the mouth in the month that is of a bid, for in it in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. Verse sixteen: In the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field, and the feast of in gathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, three times in the year all your males shall go appear before the Lord God, and um, and we see these feasts that are are given to us again. God instructs them on three agriculture feasts to be held annually. First, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We talked about that in Exodus chapter 12. There was the Passover, and then immediately following Passover, there was a seven-week feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we talked about, they were to go through their houses and take all the leaven out. Leaven was used to be put into their bread that the dough may rise. And in the scriptures, leaven speaks of, it speaks of corruption, it speaks of evil, it speaks of sin. So they were to take leaven out of their cupboards, no leaven in the house, and they were to eat unleavened bread, no leaven in the bread for a week during that feast. And we talked about the principle for you and for me is you don't have any leaven in your home. Get it out. Any corruption, anything that's unpleasing to the Lord, any sin, anything that is evil, get it out of your house and don't have it there. And don't be taking in anything that's evil that is going to corrupt you, that is going to cause you to carnal out, anything like that. You're to, to be ones that you desire to take in the things that are righteous and true and just and noble Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, a good verse for you to jot down. Whatever things are true and noble and just and pure and, and, and righteous, 
Those are the things that you're to meditate on. Those are the things that you take in. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread with, with Passover that, that would begin there in the month of Abid, the beginning of months, or also Nisan. The second harvest, the Feast of Harvest in the spring, at the beginning of the wheat harvest, when the first fruit of the crops were to be given to the Lord. And then the Feast of Ingathering that would take place in the autumn in September and October. Now, the Feast of Harvest, we're going to see in Leviticus chapter 23, that two loaves were made of new grain. They were presented to the Lord. It was also called the Feast of what? Weeks, the Feast of uh, Weeks, also called Pentecost, 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The third feast, the feast of ingathering at the end of the agriculture year, the gathering of the ingathering of the harvest, Leviticus chapter 23 again is going to give us more detail on that. Later on when the children of Israel and all these feasts will be celebrated when they go into the land. Obviously, they're not growing anything out there in the wilderness. These things are all given to when they go in the land and they receive their allotment there in the promised land and they begin to have their homes and their crops and all of this. These are the feasts that are, are to be celebrated. And then also the feast of ingathering would be called the feast of what? Tabernacles, the feast of booths. We are going to see uh, actually in the Gospels the feast of booths that are, are uh, mentioned as the people were celebrating. And it was the last day of that feast that Jesus stood up and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly will flow torrents of living water. You see, the Feast of Booths was where the people would come to Jerusalem. And at that harvest time there in the fall, it, it included where they would camp out. It's like a big camp out. They would you know, sleep in these little booths or lean-tos and look out in the stars and remember how God had brought them through the wilderness wandering. But these three agricultural feasts, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, and uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, with Passover. We talked about how Jesus is the one who is our Passover lamb. We know that the Feast of, of uh, Harvest, the Feast of Weeks, we, we called Pentecost, was fulfilled by the church as the church was born on the day of Pentecost. That was the first fruits, that is, the first one saved as Peter would stand up and 3,000 got saved. And now we see that there is the third feast, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. And it's speculated by some who suggest that perhaps the rapture of the church will take place at that feast when a final harvest of the Christians are going to be gathered and we're going to be snatched up to be with the Lord in the air forever. It could be, but not necessarily. Because no one knows the day or the hour that the Lord comes. So it could be at that time. We'll talk more about it when we start talking more specifically about these feasts and the Feast of Trumpets and, and all this that's going to be given to us. Kind of an interesting thought. But the Lord can come at any time. He could come tonight, tomorrow. He says, you don't know the day or the hour I come when you least expect. So all these things that are given in these feasts, and in verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So three things that I want to leave with you. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, since leaven is a symbol of sin and, and corruption that atoning blood was not to be offered with the leaven. Second of all, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning, the fat being the best portion of the sacrificial animal. Everything was to be given to God, not held back. And I pray for you and for me, the best that we have to give to God, that we wouldn't say, I'll give it to you tomorrow, Lord, or I'll give it to you next week, or I'll give it to you when I reach this point in my life that we would not hold back giving him all of our hearts and soul and mind and strength, that it truly would be a living sacrifice to him, and that the first fruits of the land were to be given to the Lord thirdly. Do you and I give God the first fruits of our lives, of our giving and of our service, of our devotion, or does God get the leftovers? Does God get the leftovers of our time or does he get the first fruits when we get up in the morning and we begin our day with him and say, Lord, I love you. I want to worship you. I'm giving you the first fruits of my time. When it comes to our devotion, when it comes to our giving, or does he get the leftovers? When it comes to our service to the Lord, when it comes to just walking with him, give him the first fruits 
the best that you have to give. Fourthly, don't cook young goats in mother's milk. It was believed to be a pagan Canaanite worship ritual of fertility, and God didn't want them to be associated and duplicate that. So when you go to Israel today, you're not going to get a cheeseburger. You know, you're not going to have dairy with meat, and so that's not kosher, and so they still uh, have that today. So very important things. We'll stop there, and, and then we're going to get into, again, uh, the angel and the promise, and then we'll start getting into some of the ceremonial laws. And Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, that we can go over these things and, and we can lo- learn and, and we can see your heart and, again, make application, even though this was given to the children of Israel. Um, Lord, we know that you desire for us to have a heart that, Lord, we want to treat people right, that we don't want to be unfair, that we don't want to take advantage of those that, that perhaps uh, that we have opportunity to do that, that are less fortunate, that perhaps that... Um, Lord, are defenseless. But Lord, that we would see that you see them and care. And Lord, that we would be ones that we desire to give you the first fruits of our lives. And Lord, that we wouldn't follow the crowd to do evil, but we would stand for what is right. And we know that it's going to get more difficult. And so I pray that tonight, Lord, if there's any of us that we've been making excuses, maybe in the way that we live or our attitude, that we know that is not pleasing to you. As we worship, if there's anything in our lives that, that we've been involved in, Lord, that you say, no, don't. That tonight there's opportunity to turn away from that and repent and turn to you and receive your forgiveness and love that you just have for us. And Lord, just to to say, Lord, I want to give you the best and to walk after you. And Lord, know that your word is true and you want me to experience that abundant life, to stand strong for you and to live for you. And not to, to, to say I'll do that next week or I'm in a state of compromise and, and I'll turn away from it later on in my life. But but Lord, tonight, tonight, to get it settled. And to say, enough. And Lord, I want to please you with my life. Maybe it just may be an attitude of our hearts. Maybe we just become lethargic in, in living for you, whatever it might be. Lord, that this is an opportunity for us to just come and repent and then, Lord, just thank you and just worship you that we can do that and that your love remains. Father, I pray that you would just encourage the one who perhaps feels like, yeah, I am one who, Lord, is defenseless and one that, that people can easily take advantage of me. Lord, that they would know that you are their protector and that you hear and that you see. And Lord, that they would just lean on you and trust in you and stay close to you. That you would provide for them and bless them. So, Lord, we come to you tonight. Continue to minister to us and bless us. And, Lord, draw us close to yourself as we continue to worship in Jesus' name. And we're going to worship for.